children's church. Uh, it's just an age-appropriate setting for the kids to hear the scriptures um, uh, in more age-appropriate context. And for this age, you all can stay here if you're old enough. If anybody acts up, I'm sending you out to children's church. So keep that in mind. And so uh, as they're gone, uh, let me open us in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, we are gathered because of your majesty, because you are glorious over all the earth. And so we gather together as your people to exalt your name, to praise you, to remind each other of how glorious you really are. And we thank you for calling us to that role, calling us to yourself in that way. Uh, Father, this morning I want to pray for AJ and Gwen as they head off for their honeymoon. We thank you for their wedding last night and the joyous event that was. We ask your blessing on their union that their marriage may cause them to grow uh, deeper with each other, but also, Lord, that it would cause them to grow deeper with you. So show yourself to them in, in the, the marriage that they have just pledged together. And thank you for the joy that we got to uh, share with them in doing that. Uh, Lord, we also want to praise you for having uh, Pastor Brunton, uh, uh, Brunson, rather, I'm sorry, Brunson released from Turkey after two years of imprisonment. Lord, thank you for uh, continuing to watch over your people and to see your hand at work. And we pray for uh, his safe return to the United States. Um, pray for his future ministry, Lord, that you would use him for your own glory. And uh, his story may inspire others to, uh, to endure persecution for the sake of the gospel. And Lord, as we hear that this morning and, uh, and what we read in your scriptures, Lord, would you open your word to us and apply it to our hearts uh, shine through our minds, help us to see and to understand, and Holy Spirit, help us to understand um, what it is that this scripture is saying to us. Be with us now in this time of preaching, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So um, just a reminder, the book of Acts, uh, we've finished the book of Luke, and in the book of Luke, I said that the, the theme, the topic of the book of Luke was to be disciples. And in the beginning of the book of Luke, he addresses a man named Theophilus, and he says, Theophilus, I want you to be sure of what you have learned. And I said, that's a disciple because disciples learn from their master. And so what uh, Luke was doing with Theophilus and by extension us is he's saying, this is what it means to be a disciple. This is what disciples look like. Well, Acts is kind of chapter or volume two of that story. Uh, it begins at the book of Acts right at the beginning. He says, Theophilus, he addresses him again. And he said something about what I said to you in the first book. So that implies this is the second book. Um, and if the book of Luke was about disciples, what we see in the book of Acts is disciples making disciples. So we're just kind of continuing that theme. So that's what we're seeing in the, in the book of Acts so far is how successful Jesus' disciples were at actually making disciples. And we're picking up discipleship uh, principles along the way. So this section now, chapter 12, we, we're almost done with, with Peter almost finished with his story. And then chapter 13, Paul or uh, Saul and Barnabas sail off in, in the, the missionary journeys. And everybody thinks that's what the book of Acts is about. But that didn't start until chapter 13. <laughs> up until then, we've been dealing with some other stuff. So um, we're going to pretty much wrap up uh, Peter's story here. He'll, he'll show up again. We'll get some more about him. But this is kind of the end of his story. Um, and what we're going to see in this section, this, this chapter, is uh, and this title is a little cryptic, and I, I made it that way to kind of get your attention. Living in the lower and the upper tier. What? What on earth does that mean? We'll, we'll get there. So it starts out with persecution, and then we hear about escape, 
and then repercussions. And then at the end, what I want to do is kind of come back and revisit that and look at what do we mean by tears. Uh, so what I'm planning on doing for the sermon is just kind of covering the, the story as it's written. It's a, a really an amazing story and, and pretty marvelous, but it's pretty straightforward telling. There, there's not a bunch of uh, quirks in it. So we'll go through the story, and then uh, in the end, we'll go back and look and say, now how, does it, how do we apply this? What do we do with this story? So first of all, the persecution. Um, if you remember last week, uh, in chapter 11, verse 19, it says, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So that's kind of this, this reminder that this persecution has started. There was a persecution when Stephen was stoned. Um, so does the persecution end at chapter 12 because there's a chapter break there? No, the chapter breaks are not inspired. There's not a break there. I think that echo is supposed to be ringing in our ears as we come to chapter 12, is we're reminded of Stephen's persecution, and now we're in this new phase of persecution. So this is where it starts, that King Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Um, so King Herod, who is King Herod? There are multiple King Herods in the Bible. There is the King Herod who, when Jesus was born, killed the infants, and then he died. So that can't be him. Um, there was the King Herod who Pontius Pilate sent uh, Jesus to during the trial. Well, that's not him either. Uh, this one is a man named Herod Agrippa. And you already heard the story. He's going to die. But then at the end of Acts, there's another Herod that Paul goes to and appeals to. So Herod is kind of like that dynasty name, kind of like Pharaoh or, um, or Caesar. Uh, it's not just one person, so it can be confusing because we tend to think of Herod as just one person, but this is Herod Agrippa, and Herod Agrippa is a really interesting person. i got to give you some historical background because it'll help us understand what's happening in this first section. So Herod Agrippa was born in 10 BC and died in this passage. Um, that's about 44 AD, um, and he's a half Jew. He married his cousin, and, and um, he wound up being raised in Rome, uh, with Tiberius's family. So he was really close to the throne in Rome for a while. Uh, as he, grow, he grew up, he became friends with Caligula, who became uh, one of the worst, nastiest emperors in Roman history. Uh, but he was good friends with Caligula. So in 37, when Caligula uh, became the emperor, he made King Agrippa, uh, the, he made Agrippa the king in, in the place of his uncle Philip, so he took over his part of the territory. Now, Philip was uh, the king over the northern part up by Galilee and then on the other side of the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, which would be over by Decapolis, that kind of thing. So he was up in that, that top corner over there. Um, so that's what Agrippa was given. In, uh, in 41 AD, Agrippa decided to side with, or he, oh, I'm sorry, in 41 he, he talked Caligula out of introducing emperor worship in Jerusalem. That seems like a very risky thing because Caligula was a pretty impetuous kind of guy. He could fly off the handle at any moment, but um, Agrippa knew him well enough and had grown up with him. He was able to talk him out of imposing emperor worship in Jerusalem. That's a sign of God's mercy. That, that was something that was pretty, uh, pretty impressive. So when Caligula died, Agrippa supported Claudius' ascension to the throne. And that was risky, too, because at those times when there's, there's changing of the, the uh, emperor, people lose their heads, literally. I mean, we, we figuratively lose our head when you know, we change presidents. But in Rome, you would actually lose your head if you were on the wrong side of that debate. So Agrippa kind of puts it out there. He kind of you know, sticks his neck out and supported Claudius. Well, when Claudius took over the throne, he then promoted 
Herod Agrippa. So now Herod Agrippa is over essentially all the land that belonged to his grandfather, Herod the Great. So all of Judea, Samaria, all those northern parts up into Syria, that's his empire. It's a pretty big chunk of real estate. Um, one of the things about Agrippa was he was half Jew, but he was very fascinated with the Jewish people, and, and he tried to ingratiate himself to them. He wanted to be considered one of them. Um, that was kind of his, his normal approach. And so he would do all kinds of things with the Jews. He would even participate in temple worship. He would do, participate in the public reading of the law in the temple because he wa- I think he wanted to be considered a Jew. That's how he saw himself, and so that's what he was looking at. So that's who he is historically. Now begins to make sense what we see next is he begins to persecute the church. Why? Because the Jews were upset about it. Remember what's been happening so far? Is there's more and more opposition to the, the way, to the church. And so it looks like Herod looks on that and says, yeah, I need to get on that because, you know, we Jews, we hang together, even though he's, you know, not really very Jewish. Um, so he, he persecutes many people. He killed James, the brother of John. So James and John and Peter were the three that went up on the mountain of transfiguration with, with Jesus. They saw him transfigured before their eyes. And Jesus at that time said, uh, there are those among you before they went up on the mountain who will not die before you see the glory of the kingdom of heaven. And now James is dead. He, he saw that glory. So he kills James and he finds out what it says is he, um, he, he found that it pleased the Jews. So the Jews who were in opposition to the church thought this is a great idea. And so he says, yay, let's do some more of that. Uh, Peter, I understand he's been a problem too. Arrest him. The problem is timing. It's time for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so Herod doesn't want to make a move during that time, so he just throws Peter in jail and waits till the Passover is over. Once Passover is finished, then he'll bring him out and execute him. So that's the persecution that's risen. And now it's ramped up. It's not just Saul running around locking people up. Now you've got the king coming after you. And the king has authority not just to lock you up, but to kill you. And so that's the plan for Peter is, hey, if it made him happy to kill James, Peter's next. We'll really thrill him. This will be great. So that's the persecution that arises in the church. There's escape, too. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. There's, there's one other thing I want to mention. Four squads of soldiers. There were four squads of soldiers assigned to one man. They must have thought he was some sort of a threat. A squad of soldiers was four soldiers. And there were four squads because what they would do is they would work through the night. They would take three-hour shifts throughout the night. And then when we get to Peter's escape, what you see is there's one soldier on one side, one soldier on the other side, and then two guarding the gates. That's the squad of soldiers assigned to Peter. That's a lot of money and time to invest in four soldiers to guard one guy. Why would they do that? Peter was no big threat. He, he didn't kill anybody. He wasn't Barabbas or anything. Well, I think what's going on here is he's, Herod has heard from the Jewish leaders, look, we arrested him before. We tried this once already. And he showed up the next morning in the temple preaching again. So this guy is an escape artist or something, or his friends are really good at busting him out, or he knows somebody inside or something, but you've got to do something about this. And Herod, again, is like, don't worry, you guys, I got this. Four squads of soldiers will put, chain two soldiers to him, put him on the door. He's going nowhere. I don't care how good of an escape artist he is. So that's what that looks like. Is, is, that's why he assigned so many soldiers to guard one guy, not because Peter was a threat, but because he kept getting out. So we're going to take care of that. Um, the next section kind of answers that. 
<laughs> Did it work? <laughs> not, not particularly well. Uh, what Luke does now is he tells us the story of his escape, and he tells us with some detail, not a whole bunch, but some detail. Um, and uh, and he, ha- he reminds us at the end that, that Peter told that story again and told him to tell the rest of the church. So Luke seems to think this is an important story. Uh, so here's what's going on. is uh, He's chained up between these soldiers, and he's been in prison for all of, or most of at least, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, it doesn't say that they arrested him right at the beginning, but it kind of sounds like he arrested him near the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And now it says the very night that the, f- the feast was over, the next morning he's going to be brought out and executed. So it's right at the end of the feast. He's in the prison cell, sound asleep, bound by two soldiers. And an angel of the Lord appears and stood next to him, and the, the, the light filled the cell. Now, I don't know if that means that the angel glows in the dark, um, or if it just means what he was about to do, Peter needed to be able to see what he was doing. So he filled the cell with light. Um, but and it, there's... I don't know if you guys smiled even. I kind of smiled at, at a couple of places in the reading of this. They're, they're almost funny. Um, even though it's a very serious thing. I mean, James is dead. Stop laughing. It's not funny. But it is kind of humorous because the angel appears, the cell's filled with light, and Peter's snoring. He's sound asleep. So the angel has to whack him on the side and say, Peter, wake up. Uh, uh, and Peter doesn't quite wake up, does he? He, he? he says, okay, wake up. All right, I'm awake. The chains fall off his arms. Okay. Now get dressed. Okay. Now put your shoes on. Okay. Now wrap your cloak around. Come on. It just is this almost comedic scene of Peter just, you know, looking like me when I wake up in the morning, you know, stumbling out of bed. And so he leads him through and leads him out of the the prison. When they get to the big iron gate that guards the prison, it just opens. No big deal for us, right? I, I pretend like I have Jedi powers when I'm at the grocery store. I just do this, and the grocery store doors open. But that was unheard of in this day. So this angel walks up, and the door just whoop, and it's open. And Peter walks out, and they go down the street, and then the angel is gone. Poof, disappears. And at that point, what we hear is Peter thought that he was having another vision. Because remember, he had a vision earlier. He was up on his roof on a rooftop hungry, waiting for lunch, and he he falls into a trance. So he's thinking, oh, it's another one of those. But once he's out on the street and the angel's gone, it says he came to himself. He kind of woke up finally. He's he's been groggy up to this point. He says, wait, this was real. I'm actually out of prison. So he's finally out of jail. And the way he interprets it is he says to himself, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. That's his interpretation, which is accurate. What would you do if you were in that position? You're standing in the streets of Jerusalem alone, and you realize God's just delivered me from Herod and from the Jews. Where would you go? I know I'd go south. Because Herod owns everything from Jerusalem on up. I'd head toward Egypt, maybe over to, to uh, um, Cyrene, if I could get out there, get out of Herod's territory so he can't get his hands on me again. That's what I would do. What does Peter do? After he does all this, after he ex- understands everything that's gone on, Peter heads to the church. He says, where, would the ch- where is the church going to be gathered? Oh, Mary's house. That's probably where they're at. So he heads right, in, right back into Jerusalem. He doesn't leave. Like, what are you nuts? <laughs> you got to get out of here. 
But he has to go tell the church first. He recognizes what's happened is this great miracle, and the Lord has done this for a reason, so he's going to go tell the church. So he goes to the house of Mary. And now Mary's house must have been big because the church was gathered there praying. It must not be just like one little tiny room. And it also says that the servant girl went upstairs. So this is a two-story large house in Jerusalem. It's probably kind of an expensive thing. This was, this was a bigger deal than just a little hovel. And again, this hilarious story. Peter comes shuffling up to the gate. Bang, 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 bang. Bang, 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 bang. Who is it? Rhoda, is that you? Yes, who is it? It's Peter. Open the gate. It's not Peter. Yes, it is. Open the gate. Because he's thinking, I'm going to get arrested again. No, that's not. That can't be Peter. He's in jail. No, really. An angel let me out. Let me in. And she, she goes, oh, my gosh, it's Peter, and runs upstairs. <laughs> and, you know, the camera follows her upstairs, so we'll go with her. But imagine Peter sitting on the street. Rhoda? Bang, bang, bang. Rhoda? Rhoda, where did you go? Let me in. So she, he runs up, she runs upstairs and announces to the church, Peter's at the gate. And what does the church say? The church, now, remember, the church has been praying for his release for probably around a week. It said at the beginning that they were, they were um, uh, praying zealously or praying earnestly for him. And now it's repeated again at his release. So they've been praying for the release of Peter for a week. The servant girl comes busting in and says, Peter's free. And what's their response? No, he's not. <laughs> We've been praying for that. Why would he be free? We're, we're, we're praying about it. So they can't interpret that as, wait, God answered our prayer. They interpret it as, well, that can't be because he's in jail. And then there's the, the, the kind of complicated idea. They, their interpretation to her is, it's not Peter, it's his angel. What on earth does that mean? I, th this, is, this is really confusing because what does it mean that he has an angel? So this is where the idea of a guardian angel, we all have a guardian angel comes from. Anybody see It's a Wonderful Life? Clarence is, is George Bailey's guardian angel, and, and he's there to make sure that George does everything okay and all turns out right. And then when he does and he's all finished, then he earns his wings, right? Um, I don't think that's what's going on here because they think he's his angel because it sounds like Peter. So there's this Jewish tradition, extra-biblical Jewish tradition that says that there's an angel who looks like you. Um, not based on anything in Scripture. One of the other, can I sidetrack for a real quick second? One of the other funny things that they say in there is that angels don't have any back of the neck. <laughs> so they can't, turn, they can't turn their head. They have to turn around because they don't have a back of the neck. So this is really reliable stuff, right? This, this is you know, rich theology here. So the idea is that, that we have an angel. Angel represents us, speaks for us, sounds like us. Um, so it'd be easy to just dismiss it as extra-biblical teaching, right? Oh, that's nice. You know, these, these folks, that's what they believe, but that doesn't really prove it. Yeah, but <laughs> there's a complicating factor here. Um, if it was just them, then I'd say they were just believing a, a Jewish myth. But Jesus says it. So we've got to deal with this. In Matthew 18.10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you, that in heaven their angels always look on the face of my Father who is in heaven. So the little ones out of Jesus' own mouth have an angel of some sort. Now this is it. This is all the biblical teaching we get on this. So we've got to do a little hypothesizing at this point. So are they guardian angels? Well, if they are, then George Bailey's out because Clarence didn't look anything like George Bailey. 
Um, and then if you grew up in the 60s, there were TV shows where guardian angels were earning wings all the time. It became a thing because, I guess, of Clarence. Um, but that's not really the biblical picture. There's, there's some resemblance between his angel and him, um, at least according to them. But what Jesus says is these little ones have an angel in heaven who always sees their father's face. So I don't know if it's a guardian angel kind of thing. One of the interpreters, one of the commentators said, perhaps it's kind of like his ghost. They use the word angel for kind of like his ghost. So they're expecting Peter has already died. And what's at the gate is not Peter himself, but his ghost coming to say goodbye. That, that's kind of a thought. And I thought, well, that almost works until you get to what Jesus said. Because he says, if you despise one of these little ones, their angel is in heaven. That's not their ghost. That's their angel, whatever that means. So I don't know if that really makes sense. Um, it, it might be the departed soul. So it could see, he could, Jesus could be saying, don't, don't dismiss these little ones, these ones who have died and are now in heaven, because now their, their soul, their departed soul is in heaven and see my father's face. In the end, I'm not happy with any of them. Um, none of them really seem to answer it, so I'm just going to have to leave it hang and say, apparently, people have angels, somehow, in some way. Um, sorry I didn't wrap that up better, but I just there's not enough biblical data to come up with it. So that's where you want to beware. If somebody comes up and explains uh, how you have a personal angel and goes into great detail, you can immediately be skeptical, because they didn't get it out of the Bible. There's just not that much going on there. So that's the idea. So Peter's banging on the door. He wants to get in. They don't believe him. Finally, for some reason, they wander back downstairs and go, well, let's see if it's his angel standing at the door. And they open the door, and there's Peter. He's like, let me in, finally. So he comes in. Luke doesn't mention it, but they go back upstairs together, and Peter motions with his hands. That's going to become one of Luke's favorite phrases, is when somebody's about to do address a group, they're going to motion with their hands, and that gets their attention. Um, so he motions with his hands, they all come, become quiet, and he explains to them, this is what happened to me. An angel appeared to me, woke me up, drug me out of the prison, and then left me in the middle of the street. It's pretty amazing. I'm still alive. Tell James and the brothers. That's not James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of um, John, right? Because he's dead. We're not telling anybody that. This is probably James, Jesus' brother. We never hear about James's conversion because in the Gospels, Jesus' brothers think he's insane. And so they go to rescue him from his ministry because, you know, he's nuts. He thinks he's the Messiah. Well, sometime after his resurrection, James at least got the point and he becomes a believer. He got to write a book of the New Testament. So that's the James he's, he's speaking of. And he says, report it to James and the brothers. That doesn't mean only the males. Brothers, the, the term brethren came to incorporate the church, just all the believers together. So what Peter has done is he's gone to, he's broken up a perfectly good prayer meeting by answering their prayer and then reported how the prayer was answered. And then he says, now go tell the rest of the church. And I love how he wraps it up. He says, um, he, he tells him to go do that. Then he, um, he departed and went to another place. Somewhere. We don't know where. He's, he finally scooted, um, which is what I would have done at step one, but he does it at like step five there. So he leaves and he's gone. Poof. So that's the escape. The Lord has delivered Peter. Um, 
from this persecution. Now, what are the repercussions of this? How does this, this play out? Um, we're back to Herod again, more, more of Herod. Uh, Herod is, angry, uh, is upset because there's no Peter. Where's my show? Where's my, my thing to please the Jews? He's gone. So he drags the prisoner or the, the uh, guards out, questions him, and has him executed. Do you get the idea Herod's a pretty cold-blooded person? He's fairly ruthless. The, the morals that he learned growing up in Rome are very different from our morals. People are not equal. If you have the power, you do what you want. And so that's what you see Herod doing. He's living a very Roman lifestyle. Okay, what happened? Good. Okay, kill him. And throw them away like they're nothing. Um, that's not a, a Christian ethic of who people are. That's a Roman ethic. And so he becomes, he gets angry with them. He, he has them searched. They can't find him. He examines the sentries. He has them killed. Psh, I'm out of here. So he goes back to Caesarea. No map this time. You know where Caesarea was, remember? North. Um, so he goes to Caesarea. And now at this point, Luke and the Jewish historian Josephus tell the same story, pretty much the same story, about um, Herod at Caesarea giving a speech and dying. Um, there's just two slightly different interpretations of it. So here's what happens in, in Luke's telling. The people of Tyre and Sidon, that's Syria. That is under his control now. So the people of Syria, Tyre and Sidon, um, he gets mad at them for some reason and cuts off their food supply. They apparently can't raise their own food, so they, he's got to provide it to them. And so they get to him by talking to his, his chamberlain, Blastus, and they get a hearing. And so they appear to him, and now they are sucking up really bad. I mean, really bad. So what happened, according to Josephus, is uh, Herod goes to Caesarea, and he has games, like, um, like Olympic kind of game kind of thing, in Caesarea in honor of the emperor. And during this, the people of Tyre and Sidon come to him and they start praising him. And Josephus says pretty much the same thing. They start praising them and saying, this isn't the voice of a man, this is the voice of a god. And both Josephus and Luke both say he didn't say anything about it. And so the way Josephus explains it is at that very moment, actually, it's, it's, it, there's a little bit more detail to this. Earlier in his life, Herod was arrested and he was put in jail in Rome. And he looked up and he saw an owl over his head. And it was interpreted to him that this was an omen that he would be released. And he was released. But the omen also said, if you see that sign again, that's when you're going to die. So what Josephus says is he tells that story and he says, as he's sitting there in the games, he looks up and there's an owl over his head. And as soon as he sees the owl and the people start praising him, he has intense stomach and chest pain, just really aching hard and five days later died. That is a sudden death. Uh, not as sudden as he might have liked, but he, he died fairly quickly. The way Luke explains it is, he was struck by God, an angel came and struck him, he was eaten by worms and died. And he uses the word immediately. Um, so when historians look at these two accounts, Luke's account is fairly cut and dried, isn't it? He did this, he did this, this happened, it's over. And then Josephus gets into this owl and this, this other stuff. Which one do you think is more credible according to the, the, um, the scholars? Josephus, obviously. <laughs> yeah. If it was the other way around, if Luke had told all sorts of fancy things in there, they would have went, oh, Luke is all just made up. But Luke tells it in, in his typical Lucan 
straightforward, this is what happened kind of way. The interpretation is Herod didn't give glory to God. Herod took glory to himself, and God struck him dead. And, and that's, that's the picture that they're given there. The wonderful thing is he ends a section, and, and I ended at verse 24 because these kind of statements are, are seams. They're kind of wrapping up a section before we go to the next section. So I end with verse 24. The word of God increased and multiplied. In other words, Herod's persecution didn't end the church. It didn't even slow the church down. It, it continued to grow and to abound. Things kept going, even with, in the face of this persecution. So that's the story. Um, Remember, I teased you with the title being uh, Living in the Upper and Lower Tier. And so now what I want to do is kind of drag that out a little bit and show you what I mean by that. Um, what I mean by upper and lower tier is there's the material, there's the physical, there's the natural, if you will, and then there's the supernatural. So materialists, that's people who don't believe in God, who, who think that all that we can, the only thing we can, that is, is what we can see, measure, observe, that kind of stuff. Materialist. They deny the upper tier. They just say it's not there. Um, Herod's violence was political. Uh, prayer is just wishful thinking. You know, waste your time doing it if you want. Uh, Peter's escape, well, that was either a fake or it was planned or maybe an earthquake opened the door or maybe it's just a fable that never actually happened. And Herod's death, well, it's just a coincidence. So that's living in the lower tier and denying an upper tier, if you see what I mean. The upper tier, though, that's, that's, there's a reality to that that we don't often see. And so sometimes people who focus on the upper tier too much, I would call spiritualists. And they don't deny necessarily the material, but what they do is they tend to think that that upper tier is not ruled. It's not ordered. There's no structure in it. So think about any modern horror movie or horror book. The demons just run amok. They do whatever they want. There, there's some, usually some rules so that you can actually get around to killing them. Uh, but generally speaking, there's, there's no God watching over them, restraining what they can do. They just go out and do evil all they want. Um, or animists. Um, animists are people who believe that there is a spiritual world, that there's spirits, and that the spirits, are uh, they inhabit things like trees or, or sabers or something. And they're the ones that you have to appease because they're the forces in nature that can either make your life good or bad. So again, this is, a, this is a spiritualist approach. The upper tier is unruled. There's, there's no structure, nobody in charge. These spirits are just tormenting you until you appease them. And then, then they kind of settle down. Think about like medieval superstitions. The idea was uh, when you die, Satan would show up and try to steal your soul. And so you had to have something there to protect you. You had to have a, a crucifix or have a priest come and say the magic words over you or something. Otherwise, Satan would steal your soul and drag you off. Satan is unchained. He's unbound in that kind of approach. There's no real structure to the upper tier. It's just whatever Satan can get away with. Some people today, and, and you'll know what I'm talking about in about a second, believe that the planets and the stars influence the upper tier, right? And you can look it up in the newspaper, and it's printed there, and they'll tell you, you know, you never read in one of those, you will be hit by a bus this afternoon at 3. They're always so nebulous. Uh, good fortune will come your way if you do the right thing or something like that. The, the idea there is that these, these forces of planets and stars influence the upper tier. It's real, but it's, it's influenced by planets and stars, not by a personal living individual. 
And then finally, one I've got to bring up is that there are people who believe that that upper tier is manipulated by spells and hexes. So I just read this morning that Judge Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court. Wiccan in, I think it's Oregon, are getting together and they're going to put a hex. Oh no, it was in New York. Uh, they're going to get together and they're going to put a hex on Judge Kavanaugh. And so the article explained the difference between a spell and a hex and there's binding spells and this kind of stuff. What they believe is they believe in an upper tier, but they think that they have power to manipulate and control it. And so they're going to do these rituals, they're going to make these moves and say these words to manipulate the upper tier in order to carry out vengeance on what they think is an unjust person. And so the Wiccans say that they always side with the, the, um, the weak and the marginalized. That's their approach. So do you see the difference between the upper tier and the lower tier? There's the lower tier says there is no upper tier, and then there's people who say there is an upper tier, but we're in control of it, or nobody's in control of it. So what I want to point out from this is what I think Luke is showing us in this section is the lower tier and the upper tier, and he's reminding us of who's in charge. The reason I say that is, I'm not trying to pull this out of thin air here, the reason I say that is because one of the things Luke repeats in this section, says it twice, is the church was praying. The church had been praying during this whole thing. The other reason is because look what happens to Herod. Herod misconstrues his role in that upper tier, and God judges him for it. So for Christians, and, and I read a quote from R.C. Sproul who said, if you remove the supernatural, there is no Christianity. Here's the difference. For the Christian, that upper tier is actually ruled and reigned and owned by Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean. If you look at Colossians chapter 2, I'm just going to read a couple of sections from Colossians chapter 2. Keep in mind the upper tier and the lower tier and listen to Jesus' role in this. So starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 15, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. So the idea is there are rulers and authorities. There are principalities and powers. There are these stoichia is the Greek word. It's, it's this elementary principles, these elementary ideas, these elementary spirits of the world. Those are the things that exist in the upper tier. And what did Jesus do? Jesus, through his death and resurrection, triumphed over them. All of those spirits, all of those things that are existing in the upper tier are now in chains, and they follow after Lord Jesus, the triumphant king who has defeated them. That's the picture. Listen to where else he goes with this. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So what Peter said, or what, I'm sorry, what Paul says there is not, he doesn't say there is no upper tier. He says, don't be fooled by people who think that they manipulate that, who think that they can control it by observing this new moon or this feast or worshiping angels or going on in these weird genealogies and interpreting that stuff. 
That is not upper tier reality. The upper tier reality is Jesus is there ruling and reigning. That's who you be taken captive by. And then finally, he says, if, you are, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you're alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So he's, he's reminding his listeners, they're, they're being led captive by this false teaching. These people who come in and talk about worshiping in angels and, and genealogies and don't touch this and don't eat that and you gotta remain pure. And he's like, that's not the real upper tier. The real upper tier is it's all captured by Jesus Christ. That's who you have to answer to. So do you have anything to fear from a spirit visiting your home and stealing your soul away? Jesus got that spirit on a chain. He, he goes nowhere. Is, is Satan going to come and rip you out of your house and drag you off? Can you be possessed because Satan broke loose and got... He is on a chain. Jesus is the one who rules that upper tier. And you can see that because when Herod steps up and, and accepts the worship, and you can just see him raising his hands and kind of basking in it, he didn't tell the people, no, that's not right. He is immediately judged. Not only is he judged because he opposed the church. Remember what happened with Saul when he was opposing the church? Jesus met him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Herod is doing the exact same thing. Herod is persecuting Jesus Christ himself. And this is where we get that idea that Jesus rules that upper tier. What happened to Saul when he persecuted Jesus? Jesus knocked him to the ground and turned him into one of his followers. It was Jesus' good disposition. It was his pleasure to call Paul to himself. What does he do with Herod, the half-Jew, who kind of plays at being Jewish? He strikes him dead. Because Jesus rules the upper tier, Jesus is the sovereign over all of those things. He makes the decision, what is the right approach for the right person at the right time? For Herod, apparently the right, pro right approach was some sort of horrible disease that withered him in a matter of days or instantly. Depends on whose side you go with in, in the storytelling. That's because our Christ is supreme over all of those things. So this is the, the difference between the tiers. So how are we supposed to live in these two tiers? We Christians are, what Paul has told us in Colossians is, we're living in both of those tiers. The reality is we're halfway between them. We're still here. If you doubt it, have somebody pinch you, and you'll remember that you're still here. We are still here, and yet, Paul tells us in Ephesians, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. We're in the second tier, and yet we're, pil we're pilgrims. We're wandering here. We're waiting until we arrive at that heavenly country, that city built by God with foundations instead of tent pegs. So how do we do that? Well, as disciples of Christ, we do what the church was doing. We continue to pray because prayer is not us exerting our faith power into the heavenly places and manipulating forces there. We pray to a personal God. We pray to Jesus Christ, to God the Father, to God the Holy Spirit, because they rule and reign in that upper tier. And that upper tier has implications down here in the lower tier. There's a link between the material and the immaterial. So when you pray, remember you're praying to a person, not to a force. 
You're asking Jesus Christ, Lord, would you operate in this environment, in this place, what's happening here on earth that God actually cares about? God cared so much about this material plane, this, this lower level, that the Son took on human form so that he could come into it, into this lower parts of the earth. He cares what happens here. But that doesn't make this the only reality. It makes it part of reality. The other part is the heavenlies. So when you pray, you are not exerting faith power in the, in the heavenly places to manipulate forces that you can't understand. You are doing something even greater, even better, something that's more sure. You are appealing to the God who saved you, the God who loves you. And you're saying, Lord, would you use your wisdom, your power, your, your authority that you've exerted over all spiritual forces, would you use those to affect the things that happen here in the way that you know best? That is much more assuring to me than saying, I'm going to apply my faith power in the heavenlies because I can really screw this up. I could pray for the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time, and I am not sovereign. I am not omniscient. I don't know all of that stuff. I get to appeal to somebody who is. That's a better deal. So we pray. And when we pray, do you pray and expect an immediate answer? And if you don't get an immediate answer, well, drop it. The church is praying for a week for Peter. They continued in earnest prayer for Peter. They're like, we don't want him executed. Now, it's reassuring to me to read this when the church goes, nah, that's not him. Because what happens when your, your prayers get answered? <laughs> well, it's just a coincidence. It didn't. It's so human for us to not think in that second tier way. So it, it's reassuring to see the church here praying earnestly. God answers their prayer and delivers Peter, and they still don't believe it. That sounds like me. Lord, I've been praying for this for a long time, and it's happening, but surely it can't be because I've prayed. I mean, you're sovereign, and you're, you're all-knowing, and my little prayer doesn't have anything to do with it. That's the thing. Your little prayer does have something to do with it. God is sovereign. God is all-knowing. And yet, at the same time, he commands your prayer. He tells you, pray. And how did he tell us to pray? What did Jesus say? Thy kingdom come, my will be done. No, he said, I want you to pray. I want you to go to your father, approach him as a father, and say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. He wants us to pray to God and ask God to do what God's going to do. That's the kind of prayer that succeeds every single time. God, would you be who you are? Would you do what you do? And for some reason, in some way, God uses those means. So if the church wasn't praying for Peter, what would have happened? I have no idea, and neither do you. Don't answer that question. The church did pray. God did answer the prayer. God used the means of the people praying to accomplish what he was going to accomplish in some way. That's where that upper tier gets a little misty and a little cloudy, and we don't have all the details. But God uses prayer. So they prayed, and they prayed for a week. How did God respond to their prayer? He did, in this case, he dispatched an angel. An angel shows up in the prison. Could he have just opened all the gates and, and floated Peter right out, just... He could have done it any number of ways. He chose to answer in the way that would give him the most glory. It's an angel standing next to me. He's telling me that God's delivering me, and I walk out the gate. That is where the, the second tier now interferes with the first tier. The angel showed up. The prayer is answered. I am not guaranteeing you an angel every time. Um, it can happen. There are stories that are told. There was a missionary to Tibet and when he went into Tibet and he started witnessing, they arrested him and they lowered him into a pit and locked the gate over top of him. 
they locked it. It had a key and it was locked. During the night, all of a sudden a rope appears next to him. He was sitting on the bones of people they'd thrown in there before, and a rope appears. And so he puts his foot in the rope and he gets on and he pulled up out of the pit and he gets up and he crawls out and there's nobody there, just him and the rope. And so he goes back into the town and starts preaching again. Well, the priests, they come and arrest him. This, this is documented, by the way. They come and arrest him, and they say, how did you get out? He said, somebody let a rope down. I thought you guys did that. They, they said, nope, hold on. Somebody's, somebody else has got a key. They did a thorough search. The only person with the key was the priest who arrested him. So this missionary said, that was an angel. God sent an angel to get me out of that prison. So I'm telling you, it happens. But it doesn't happen all the time. How often does it happen that way in Acts? This is one of those rare instances where an angel shows up and delivers Peter and kills Herod. But it doesn't happen all the time that way. Sometimes things just go. And so that's the struggle that we have living in the upper and the lower tier at the same time, is what the world around us tells us, what it shouts in our science and in our schools is there is only the lower tier. It's only the material world. What you see portrayed on television and in movies is there is no upper tier. We did this. This is us figuring these things out. We made these things happen. Or when they do get into the upper tier, they distort it and turn it into monsters and zombies and all this kind of stuff who have no control, nobody watching over them. So it's hard for us to say we're going to live this natural and the supernatural life because we know who rules the upper tier. And, and instead, there are some that deny that or get really twitchy if you get anywhere near the upper tier. And the reality is we have, to, we have to struggle to keep both in balance. They're both real. They're both actually what's happening. So I think that's what Luke is showing us here is he's given us this really clear picture by announcing these angels and showing us the results of the church praying and God's supernatural intervention in these events and kills Pilate in a way that winds up in, in secular history. So we say, yep, that's how Pilate died. He was struck down really quick. That, that's what God did. Now Luke tells us God did it. Josephus says, well, he just got sick. So that's the difference. And I think this is important for disciples to remember these two categories, these two things that we have to keep in tension. We're waiting for the fullness of the upper tier to come. But in the meantime, we have to live between the two. And so struggle with that. Prayer is hard. Guess what? Prayer is hard because you're, you're appealing to somebody you can't see. You're appealing to powers that you have no connection with other than through this one person, Jesus Christ. And so it can be hard. Struggle through it. Don't dismiss every supernatural thing that happens. Don't, don't try to explain it away immediately. We don't look at this and go, oh, well, you know, there was an earthquake in 40-something in B.C. and A.D., and the, the gate just popped open. Yeah, maybe that did. Maybe there wasn't an earthquake. Maybe it was the angel rustling the thing open. Who knows? But don't rush to the naturalistic answer, and don't rush to the over-spiritualized over answer either. God did both in the heavenlies and here on earth. And that's our discipleship principle from Acts chapter 12. That's what we have to learn from this section. And this is going to become important again when we get to Paul's ministry, because there's going to be a lot of miraculous things happen as Paul goes out to the nations. And, and I think Luke is kind of setting us up with the story, reminding us that these two realities exist. And they actually happen, and they actually affect each other. Our prayers affect what happens in the heavenlies. The heavenlies actually affect what happens on earth. And so as disciples, let's use that power 
That's, that's what Jesus has given us. He's commanded us to pray. He's given us his Holy Spirit who prays when we don't know how to pray. Prayer is an actual force that we can use, but we don't use it like a sword that we're going to lob somebody's ear off with. We're going to Jesus and saying, would you, Lord, could you have this, would this happen? Can you? So pray for each other. Pray for each other regularly. If you're not on the prayer chain, the prayer e-news, get on it. Put on the card, communication card today. I want to be part of that. And pray and watch what happens. It's a glorious thing to pray for your friends and then listen to those prayer requests as God continues to move in ways. It may be a week of prayer where nothing happens. You're praying to a person, not a force. And so in the right time, in the right way, he'll answer. It may be years where nothing happens. But when something happens, if you've been praying, you get to be part of that. You get to see what God has done. And that's our lesson. That's what, that's what Luke wants us to get from uh, this story about Peter's deliverance. And then next week, we're back to maps. Notice there was no map today. We're back to maps because we're going to start heading out to the rest of the world. So um, look forward to pretty pictures but also just this glorious story of Paul taking the message to the nations. Let's pray. Lord, persecution came. That um, was real. It happened under Stephen. Lord, it happened at the time Peter and, uh, was arrested and James was executed. Um, Lord, we've heard of um, churches in China being bulldozed, uh, Bibles being piled up and burnt. Uh, people being hauled out of a church service and arrested. Uh, we just heard about uh, Pastor Brunson being released after two years of imprisonment in Turkey. And so, Lord, for some reason, under your sovereignty and your care and your love for us, persecution is a reality in the church. And, Lord, we are appealing to you on behalf of those Christians who are persecuted. Lord, would you end their persecution? Lord, stop what is happening to them. Bring it to a complete end. But Lord, we ask you to do that in your way, in your time, in what you know to be best. And Lord, as we walk in this material world that screams at us that there is no spiritual, Lord, would you remind us through our prayers, through studying the scripture, through sharing stories together, through living together, would you remind us that you are real, that Jesus has defeated all our foes, sin, death, hell, and all the powers and principalities that rule over us. Remind us that there is an upper tier. Lord, would you cause us, please lead us to, to live as if that's the reality with our expectation like Father Abraham of a country, of a city that's built by you. No more tent pegs, but Lord, to be home with you. And in the meantime, may we walk faithfully. I ask all these things in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.